Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, so this week we are doing something new, and it's more than just a sign on the wall. But Now we're moving into the book of Leviticus, right? So last week we wrapped up uh, Exodus, and now we're coming into Vayikra. And as we begin the book of Leviticus, we kind of come into a time where you say, all right, well, talk with people outside the congregation, like, say, family members, or even sometimes people in the congregation say, hey, we're about to study the book of Leviticus. We, you know, I'm excited about this. And they say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> How can you be excited about the book of, Le- of Leviticus? Um, we were watching a, a movie uh, called I Can Only Imagine, and it's it's a great movie if you get a chance to watch it about uh, Bart Miller and Mercy Me and the journey that he was on. Uh, and one of the characters during the movie was mentioning how he had been reading the Bible. And he's like, yeah, I've read through it a couple times, and it's really confusing. I mean, Leviticus, what's with that? <laughs> and, and, you know, often that's that's the attitude of, well, Leviticus is really difficult because um, it deals a lot with sacrifices, a lot with purity laws. Uh, we get into leprosy, we get into holiness, all kinds of topics that are very detailed. Even maybe you might say, well, it's kind of tedious. The details of the sacrifices might make you a little squeamish. And then is it hard to relate to? And then even the question of, is it relevant today? And so all these questions come into my, into mind. And so for a lot of people, it's like, well, can we just move on to the next thing? I mean, numbers is next. Let's go there. Okay. Let's go to the let's go to the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, no, Latrina says that's no better. Okay, right. Well, yeah, there's difficulties there too, right? But so, especially when we think about the work of Yeshua and the life that we have in Him and the work that He accomplished in bringing us eternal life, and we say, well, if He was the one sacrifice for all, then why do we need to learn about the other sacrifices? So that becomes a question that we will deal with a little bit today. Let's take a look here in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Actually, that's not a very good translation. It says, otherwise they would not cease to be offered. Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so what what the writer of Hebrews was saying there is, if a sacrifice were sufficient to remove your sin, you wouldn't continually, year by year, offer them. And then, continuing on in verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua Messiah once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin, or for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So as we were going through worship, and I was thinking on these verses, I feel like the overall message for today is what we saw here in verse 20, a new and living way, a new and living way, which was inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh. And so when we read through Hebrews 10, it would be very easy from what we just read there, to say that the sacrifices and offerings detailed in Leviticus don't have importance today or in the future. Because we've just read about Yeshua being the one sacrifice for sin for all time, and he opening up a new and living way, inaugurating through the veil that is his flesh, and he is the great priest over the house of God. But I think there's more to the story that we need to get into and understand, because while Yeshua was the perfect sacrifice, and he is the only one who opens up the way for us to everlasting life. There is much that we can uh, gain an understanding of what it really means to draw near and what the work of Yeshua is that he's accomplished for us through understanding the scriptures in Leviticus that God has given regarding how to draw near to him, how to approach his holy throne. And now here we are, we're less than two weeks away from Passover, and it's the perfect opportunity to say, well, we're getting ready to celebrate the death and resurrection of Yeshua, the life that he's given us, the Passover out of sin and death into life. So now we have the chance to learn better what exactly that means and how he is found in the offerings in the book of Leviticus. Now, the scriptures say in Ephesians 2, 6, that we are seated with him in, in heavenly places. Okay, it says that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And then in, uh, in Hebrews 10, 19 also, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, what, what does this look like? Right, If we're seated with him in heavenly places and we have the ability to enter into the holy place through his blood, how does that work? What does that look like? And we'll get understanding as we begin to read through Leviticus and see what God's describing. Now, one of the key elements to understanding entering through the blood of Yeshua is to understand that the life is in the blood. Okay, Leviticus 17.11, which is not part of this week's portion, is an important scripture that we'll re refer back to a couple times today. The scripture says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
Okay, so the blood that is offered on the altar is an atonement, and it brings atonement by the life that is in the blood. And when I say that by the life, it's not the death, interestingly enough, because often when we think of sacrifices, we're thinking about death, and we're thinking of blood, and something died for someone else, so the other person wouldn't have to die. And so there's this overfixation on death, but really the essence here is that it's about the life that is found, that is making intercession so that others may live. Okay, but before we get into Leviticus, I think there's a couple of things we have to take a look at quickly with what are some of the core teachings within Judaism about the sacrifices. First off is that the sacrifices did not bring forgiveness or salvation. Now, I do have to admit, I used to think that, right? That, in fact, you know, I, I can recall conversations that I wish I could take back <laughs> in the past of being like, well, you know, now that you don't have sacrifices, you know, how can you be forgiven and how can you have life? But the problem is that it's a misunderstanding of the purpose of the offerings that many people have. They weren't for forgiveness. They could not bring forgiveness because forgiveness had to come through repentance. And in the Talmud, it says, neither sin offering nor trespass offering nor death nor the day of atonement can bring expiation or make amends or reparation without repentance. So repentance becomes a very key aspect. And the Talmud also teaches that no amount of prayer or confession of sin can secure atonement unless it is accompanied by a change in conduct. Okay, So these are two really important aspects. There has to be repentance for restoration and reconciliation to take place. And the repentance is more than just lip service. The repentance has to come from a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. Right? And, and whenever someone were to bring an offering for sin to the temple, they already would have come to the place of recognizing that they had, wrong, that they had done a wrong, and they had begun to repent for what they had done, and now they're bringing an offering. Okay, so they were already down the line towards saying, okay, Lord, I want reconciliation and restoration with you. And so God is moving to forgive through that repentance, and now the offering comes through and actually brings reconciliation and restoration, which is what atonement is. Okay, and so I, I mentioned there how someone might bring an offering for sin that has been done wrong. There's also several other kinds of offerings that are mentioned in this week's portion, one of which is referred to in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Yeshua says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So this gift that he's speaking of is a particular kind of offering that is a korban. It's a korban. We're, we're going to talk about the korban um, in more detail in just a little while. But a, a korban is something that is brought near unto God. 
It is an offering that is wholly given up to the Lord. It's a gift to him that is a voluntary offering. So what Yeshua is saying is when you're coming to God to give him an elevation offering for glorifying his name, first you need to consider if you have something wrong between you and your brother. And you need to go and you need to make that right. And then from that place of you making restoration within your relationships, now come and give me an offering out of the free will of your heart to glorify my name. But first, so God put a higher degree on that relationship and restoration than he did on the burnt offering being offered up to him. And, you know, if that brings back recollections to you about how God desires obedience over sacrifice, it's the same thing here. In this case, he's desiring restored relationship over that burnt offering being offered up to him. Now, if we begin to read here in Leviticus 1, starting in verse 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, I'm not going to continue reading the rest of the portion, but I'm going to kind of give you a little outline of how the portion goes. God gives instructions about five key offerings that are to be brought, and they're really kind of broken down in Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. It's kind of nice how it was partitioned out there. But the five kinds of offering I have up here on the screen for you. And I just want to give a little overview on each one. Okay, the first is an ola, which is an elevation or a burnt offering. It's a korban. Um, it's an offering that was freely given. Uh, it's known as an elevation offering because it's the idea of elevating oneself, drawing near unto God from a, a willing heart, one that is giving something that is not required and giving it wholly to the Lord for the purpose of drawing near to him. And then the second is the mincha, which is a grain offering. Now, within the, within the ola, you can bring a bull, right? Or you can bring a goat or a sheep. Or you can bring birds. So there's three levels of the Ola offering. And each one of them is based on the, the means of the one who is bringing the offering. One who is very wealthy would bring the bull. One who is not as well off would be bringing either a sheep or a goat or birds. And then when we get down to the lowest level of the elevation offering, that's the mincha. Okay, this is just a grain offering. So it's for the, the poorest of the poor who want to bring it. Now, when the scripture says in, in Leviticus 2.1, it says, it, is, it doesn't say when a person wants to bring this. It says when a soul wants to bring this. It actually changes the word. Instead of being a man, it turns to nephesh. And what the sages gather from that is the Torah is using this language to highlight that this is only brought by the poorest of people, but God does not look at it as a lesser offering, but rather is that they have offered their own very soul on the altar. 
So even that gift is precious in God's eyes. So if you think about the, the, the widow who was putting in her two mites into the offering boxes, and Yeshua says her gift was greater than all these who just gave very large sums, that's the idea. She was offering her very soul to God, everything that she had. So the next is a shlamim, which is a peace offering. And it's often all, there's, there's various forms of shlamim offerings. And one is a thanksgiving offering. And this, this offering is, again, a voluntary offering. It's not brought for sin or anything like that. But it's from someone who is wanting to give glory to God for some great thing God has done. So it gives the opportunity to give testimony to something God has done. So what would happen is you would bring an offering, and it has a lot of uh, bread that goes along with it. So you have the sacrifice, which is going to give you a lot of meat. I guess, okay, let me clarify on this too, guys. These first two offerings, the one bringing the offering gets nothing. The priests get nothing. Everything goes to the Lord. With the shalamim, something goes on the altar for the Lord, something goes to the priests, and something goes to the one bringing the offering. So everyone is sharing in this meal. Now, the majority of the food goes to the one bringing the offering for the purpose that that person could then call friends and family and acquaintances together to celebrate and to share what great thing God had done. It was the opportunity to give testimony and witness. And there was even a timeline on how quickly you had to eat the offering. Next week, likely, we're going to talk in greater detail about the Peace Thanksgiving offering because of its connections with the Passover offering. The Passover lamb doesn't fit perfectly anywhere, but it is a type of a shalamim. Okay, And so we'll get into some detail on that. But what the sages say about this is that one who brings this is seeking to bring harmony between the heavenly world of the spirit and the earthly world of materialism. Right. They're seeking to unite the two worlds, which is really fascinating too when you get into the idea of the Passover and life with God, everlasting life through Yeshua, how God purchased a people unto himself. Okay, so then the next type of offering is a chatat, which is a sin offering. It's also uh, can be known as a purification offering, but it's it is the first time that we get to an offering that's listed in Leviticus that has to do with sin and that would have to be bought, brought when someone committed a sin that God had said not to do and when they had done it unintentionally. Okay, so this offering was not for intentional sin. It was not like, okay, I'm going to go sin. And I've got an offering that I can bring, and that's going to cover it off, and everything will be fine. It was instead for someone who inadvertently had transgressed one of the commandments. And now this is what they were bringing. God does not give a sacrifice for intentional sin. Here in Leviticus, it is not, it's not given. Intentional sin, only repentance can bring forgiveness from. Yes? 
Um, well, a sin of omission for a positive commandment. If you failed to do a positive commandment, you are not required to bring an offering. Okay, this is only for, and and so in the let me let me uh, let me give you the verse as to why that is. In Leviticus four, the scripture says in verses one and two, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "Speak to the children of Israel, saying, when a person will sin unintentionally." from among all the commandments of the Lord that may not be done, and he commits one of them, then he's going to bring an offering. So the, the criteria laid out here was it had to be unintentional. He actually had to perform an action that was, again, that was doing something that God specifically said do not do. So that was the criteria here. So a sin of omission would not necessitate an offering. Okay, and then the the fifth type listed is an asham or a guilt offering. Okay, and this had to do with uh, reparation offering for uh, issues with mishandling holy things, um, pledges, loans, robbery, various things of that nature. So there's there's several different classes that are mentioned here, but one thing that should stand out to us is that. The first three, Ola, Mincha, and Shlamim, are all voluntary offerings. It's not until Leviticus 4 that we even get to the question of sin with regard to sacrifices. But yet, my suspicion is that most people think about sacrifices being for sin. But here's God not leading in with the issue of sin. So why is he not leading in with the issue of sin? Because what he's wanting to do, well, what I think he's wanting to do is to say, I have placed my presence in your midst so that we can have close fellowship. Now, here is how you draw near to me when I'm in your midst. What use would it be for God's presence to be in our midst if there was no way to relate with him, to engage with him, to interact with him? Now, I, I, I may be, the way I say what use would it be may have been a little too flippant. Still, his glory would be amazing, right? But if we paid no attention to his spirit, his presence, to his guidance, I don't know, I'd say we're pretty lost. I'd say that we're missing out on the fullness that he's offering to us. And the way that it's expressed when these commands are given so specifically, you see, I've got this in here somewhere. I want to, I want to go ahead and talk about the drawing near aspect. Um, the verbs used here. Okay, so when the scriptures say, "Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man among you brings an offering to the Lord from animals, from the cattle or the flock, shall you bring your offering?" The scripture is saying, "When a man among you." draws near with a korban, then from the animals, from, from the cattle and from the flock, shall you draw near with your korban. Okay, so if we look here on the screen, the top word is karav, which is to draw near, bring near, or approach. The word below it is the korban, which is the offering or the thing brought near. So you can see the 
the consistency here, but what God's talking about is I've placed my presence in your midst. Now, if you want to draw near to me, this is how you're going to draw near to me is through this offering. So you're going to come and you're going to bring an elevation offering. And actually, I'm going to continue to read here. Uh, when he when he says this, he says, you shall bring it, you shall bring near your offering. If one's offering is an elevation offering from the cattle, he should, shall offer an unblemished male. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting voluntarily before the Lord. He shall lean his hands upon the head of the elevation offering, and it shall become acceptable for him to atone for him. He shall slaughter the bull before the Lord. The sons of Aaron, the Kohanim, shall bring the blood and throw the blood on the altar all around, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, I'm going to leave that off there. Okay, but, and this is consistent with how things are done throughout these offerings, is that you bring the offering, you lean your hands upon the head of the offering, slaughter the offering, and then take the blood, and then it is poured out on the altar. Now, if you recall, we talked about how the life is in the blood, and it's through the life that atonement is made. So when you're drawing near to God and you bring this offering, you perform something called smicha. When you lean your hands upon the head of it, okay, this leaning process is an impartation of oneself into the animal such that it's likened unto the soul of the one bringing the offering being imparted to the soul of the animal. And now the soul, the life, is in the blood. So when this transfer has occurred and you kill the animal and you capture the blood, then it is seen as though the essence of the one bringing the offering is in that blood. So then when the offering is poured out on the altar, their soul is brought as near to God as possible, brought into his presence. Now, when we look at that, the point is not that something had to die for the person to bring the offering. The death of the animal served a purpose of enabling the one bringing the offering to have his soul come into the presence of God, of God. And so it's not about the death of the animal, it's about the life that was in the animal that is now brought into God's presence. That may be a lot to grasp. And, and in saying this, um, I'm not making light of uh, Yeshua as the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world or saying that his death doesn't serve a purpose. But it's really about the life that he lives and the life that we have in him because he is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, And so when we think about the idea that the life is in the blood, and as we read earlier in Hebrews, that we are seated with Yeshua in heavenly places, and it's through his blood that we come into the presence of the Father. And we say, how do we do that? How is his blood the vehicle for us 
to go into the presence or to be seated in heavenly places. The way in which we are is because we have identified with him in his death and resurrection. We have taken our soul and placed it within him, given ourselves over to him, even the picture of immersion. Right? We've been immersed into him and raised to walk in life. And so now, through that, through the life that he lives, we live with him in the heavenly place. It's, a, it's the new and living way that God has given for us to draw near and to have his presence in, in our midst and for us to be in his presence. It's really a beautiful picture to think of how Yeshua gave himself freely and willingly as an offering unto the Lord. Now, one thing within this, there were several requirements when it came to offerings, right? You had to have a spotless animal, right? It had to be brought, inspected, uh, brought before the priests. It had to be slaughtered there by the priests and in a, in a very humane way. In fact, uh, if an offering was not was not done in a in the humane way it was it was rejected it was not acceptable even the thoughts of the one bringing the offering had to be in alignment with what the purpose of the offering was for it to be effective and acceptable and as i'm thinking on those things i'm just imagining yeshua right who was pouring himself out as an offering and even as he was dying and giving himself he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And how he did not, he, his life was not taken from him. He willingly gave it up. Yes, there were people who did kill him, right, and treated him inhumanely. But he gave himself freely as an offering to the Lord to glorify God and really to elevate a people out of darkness into light to bring them out of death into life. And, and that's the new and the living way that brings restoration. It's the hope that comes from his life that fuels us, that sustains us, that enables us to live this life now and look forward to the world to come. You know, last week when we were talking about how the book of Exodus was wrapping up. And we talked about the glory cloud that came down on Mount Sinai. And then the glory cloud came down on the tabernacle. And we talked about how the whole second half of Exodus is a chiastic structure that has at its center the redemption, the intercession that is brought forth and the grace being extended to people who were in need of restoration. And it's that grace and that intercession and that redemption that makes it possible for fellowship and relationship with God to take place. It was that way in the wilderness. When God gave Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, he builds the tabernacle. 
And when he's completed it, the presence of God in his glory comes down and is so intense that Moses cannot enter. And that's what we wrapped up reading last week from Exodus 40, verses 33 through 35, or actually 34 to 35. Let's read that. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, and, and we mentioned too last week that the cloud had been on the mountain, and Moses was able to enter into it. But now the cloud had come down on the tabernacle, and Moses could not enter in because the intensity of God's presence was that much greater. And so now, this is really where we have the problem. They've done what God said, and they've created the tabernacle, and his presence is now in their midst, but there's no way to approach him. And that's where we picked up when we began to read here in Leviticus, where God says, if you want to draw near, draw near in this way. He gives the solution on how to come in and engage God to come into his presence. And the solution is having your soul brought into God's presence through the life of a substitute, if you will, of one who stands in your place. In this case, in Leviticus, we're reading about how the animal serves as that vehicle. And then we talked about the new and living way whereby Yeshua himself and the life that he still lives today is how we enter into God's presence. Um, I feel like, you know, I mentioned a little bit about how the peace offering is another, another picture of the Passover offering. And, and I mentioned the several classes here, right? Of the Ola, Mincha, Shlamim, Chetat, Nasham. If we broke these down into, I guess, three simple categories, we'd combine the Ola and the Mincha into one, uh, since those are all elevation free will offerings. Then there's the Shlamim, which really stands on its own. It's a unique one. And then you have the Chetat and the Asham. That's one where something goes on the altar and then the priests get a share, but the person bringing the offering doesn't get anything. So those are really the three classes. You have the first one where it's all unto God. The second class where God, the priest, and the one bringing the offering share. And then you have the sin offering where in which it's just God and the priests who have their portion. And these three classes have uh, three really three key elements within the timeline of history. So the first Ola offering in the scriptures is when God told Abraham to bring Isaac up as an offering. That's the first Ola. Okay. So within that one, you know the story well. God told Abraham to bring up his son, his only son, as an offering on one of the mountains that he would show him. And that was Mount Moriah that, that God showed him. And we know that Isaac went and willingly offered himself up. He was 37 years old at the time, plenty old to overcome his dad, who was 137 years old. But he's, he willingly went forward to do 
what his father's desire was. And, you know, so we have that Ola, we have that picture of one who is giving himself up. And then you have the picture of Yeshua as an Ola, offering himself up. The one and only son. Then the Shalamim, okay, this is the one that was shared by all. Back when God was bringing the children of Israel into covenant with him, back in Exodus 24, Moses had the young men bring various offerings. Okay, And one of the key things that they brought up were peace offerings to the Lord. And it was the blood of these offerings that were sprinkled on the book of the covenant and on the people. It was part of the initiation into covenant that this was brought. And then when we consider that even the Passover lamb was a type of shalamim, right? A redemption for the people out of Egypt. And then there at Sinai for entering into covenant with God. And then Yeshua at Passover begins to convey that the cup, the cup of redemption represented the blood of the covenant that he was initiating and inaugurating in that time to bring a greater level of covenant relationship and redemption. And then lastly, when we go down to the third class, the one that was required for sin and could be a purification, it's a sin offering, it's also a purification. And in the scriptures, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, let me find that real quickly. There we go. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we read that, it's important to understand that for our sake he made Yeshua to be chetat, a sin offering, who knew no, the man who knew no sin, who was perfect, God made him a sin offering so that we might become the righteousness of God, that he might purify us and cleanse us. Right? He didn't cause Yeshua to become sin. Right? He caused him to become a sin offering. Because if he caused him to become sin, he would no longer be fit as an offering. Right? So he didn't make him become sin. He did bear our sins. Right? But he made him a sin offering, one that brings purification, the one that brings us to a place of relationship and be able to walk in righteousness, having a changed and renewed nature. All for the purpose of redeeming a people unto God. Um, and you know, back in, okay, so if we kind of put this story together and we say, God has given us a way to draw near to him. That way to draw near is through the life that is in the blood. And we see the evidence of that in the life of Yeshua and how he gave of himself. Then, if we go back and reread some from Hebrews 10 here in verse 19, the scripture says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The imagery 
of the offerings is found throughout Hebrews. And it's not presented as a replacement for the offerings that are done in the temple, but rather to help illustrate and understand the work of Yeshua and how he serves as the vessel that brings us into life and into a deeper relationship with God. I think one one other thing, I hadn't planned on going into this, but I think it's an important aspect. We We talked multiple weeks ago about faith and Torah, faith and law not being at odds with one another, like they're not in competition with one another. Faith and God's revealed righteousness through his Torah go hand in hand. We walk out our faith by walking in God's righteous Torah. So when faith comes, it doesn't negate Torah. Torah doesn't negate faith. They go hand in hand to accomplish a purpose. When it comes to the one sacrifice that Yeshua made for all mankind, such that there is no need for sin offering for everlasting life, what what was accomplished through him is effective in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm. It is not in competition with or at odds with the with the Levitical sacrificial system. The Levitical sacrificial system was put in place for this world, not for the heavenly tabernacle. You know, there's two tabernacles, right? There's the one that is in the heavens that is the original one from which God showed Moses how to make a tabernacle on the earth, right? So the tabernacle on the earth is a shadow of what exists in the heavens. The tabernacle being built on the earth did not negate the tabernacle in the heavens, right? But the tabernacle on earth was a shadow of that which was above. Now, the tabernacle on the earth had to be cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats. The tabernacle itself, all of its instruments that were within it, the priesthood, everything had to be cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats. But the tabernacle in the heavens had to be cleansed with something that is greater than that. Okay. Um, I'm going to read here from Hebrews 9. Okay, Hebrews 9.21. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the Torah, almost all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, talking about the blood of bulls and goats, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's making the statement of the tabernacle, which is the earthly copy of the thing in the heaven, had to be cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats, but the heavenly things had to be cleansed with something greater. For Messiah did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, 
but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with blood not his own. Otherwise he would, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay? So, there was the, the copy here on earth, and then there's what was in the heavens. Yeshua's blood serves to cleanse that which is in the heavens, not which is on the earth. Just as Yeshua is not a priest on the earth, but he is a priest, in, the high priest in the heavens. Because the writer of Hebrews even says that Yeshua could not be a priest on the earth because he is not of the tribe of Levi. Right, so he distinguishes between the two. So within all of this, within our within our pursuit of seeking understanding of the, the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, the work of Yeshua, as we go through Leviticus, I wanted to kind of lay some of this groundwork today to say, okay, well, the Levitical priesthood is not at odds with Yeshua's priesthood, which is often referred to as the Melchizedek priesthood. The sacrifices and offerings that are made on the earth at the tabernacle are not at odds with the work of Yeshua on the cross. And of course, our faith and Torah don't go at odds with one another either. Um, but those are key elements for us to understand as we talk about these things, because there is an earthly restoration and redemption that is still taking place and will not be completed until the end of this age. Even though today there is no temple standing, there are no sacrifices being offered, there will be a day when they are offered again. And when they are offered again, they will not be for forgiveness of sin. They will not be for everlasting life because they weren't intended that, that way from the beginning. They won't become intended that way. Now, the death and resurrection of Yeshua is intended for forgiveness of sin and for everlasting life. The blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish that. Only his life that he lives can accomplish that. Um, so with this, all in all, the tabernacle was a gift to the children of Israel for God's presence to be with them in the wilderness and even in the land of Judea and in the day when it is rebuilt. It is a gift for God's presence to be in their midst as a place to draw near, to worship God. But the life comes, the life comes through the new and living way, through Yeshua. And, all, you know, I guess one thing that I'm just being impressed upon, we talk about the redemption and the life that we have in Yeshua. And there's purpose in this far beyond just making it that we have a place to go when we die. It's for the life that we live now. And in the wilderness, God's glory came down on the, on the tabernacle. And the scripture says, as we close out Exodus, it says, when the cloud would lift from the tabernacle, the people would journey. And when the cloud would rest, the people would camp. And that's how the book of Exodus concludes. 
Well, then if you fast forward completely past the book of Leviticus and nine chapters into Numbers, you come to that same phrase talking about the cloud being lifted up from the tabernacle and the, and the children of Israel would journey. And when it would rest, they would camp. And so you have these two bookends about being guided by God's presence and having his presence in the midst of the people. And in the middle of that, the scripture is filled with the inauguration of the tabernacle, the offerings that are brought for the purpose of a people drawing near and having reconciliation and restoration take place between God and people with broken relationships, with laws of purity and how a people are to live as those who are holy and set apart unto God. And I think the key element within that, if we're looking at like a macro picture, is that God says, I have placed my presence in your midst, and now you are a special and set-apart people with my presence. How are you to live? How are you to relate with me? How are you going to make yourself a vessel for hosting my presence? And so he says, here's how you draw near. You draw near through the life of that which is offered on your behalf. You set yourself apart and you walk according to my ways. You make yourself holy by keeping my commandments. And you cleanse yourself in the ways that I prescribe so that you can come before me. It's not a common life that he's called us to live. It's not a casual life. It's one of devotion and recognizing the glory that he's placed in us. And, now, and then saying, because of this, because of God drawing near, how then am I to live? Because of the avenue to life, this new and living way that he's given me now, how do I conform my life to the life of his son? And it's a journey. It's a journey that is filled with pitfalls, trials, and challenges all along the way. But God's given us an intercessor and an advocate who stands on our behalf, who is in the very presence of God, where we are seated with him in heavenly places because he's brought us into that righteousness. And he says, now you are righteous. I've called you righteous. I've made you clean. I've purified you. Now go and walk in it. Fully recognizing your sin doesn't define you. God defines you. And he says, I've made you a new creation, a new creation, a new creature. You know, I used to say I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm not a fan of saying that anymore. Because I'm one who's been redeemed by the blood of Yeshua. That is the identity that we're to walk in. We don't identify with our sin. We identify with his righteousness. And when we identify in his righteousness, we redefine as he has defined. We redefine our walk as he has defined our walk. As overcomers, those who have been lifted up and brought forth. So we may stumble 
and we may fall. Our flesh and our heart may fail us, but the Lord is the strength, our strength and our portion, right? So we cling to him and draw near to him and give praise and glory to him because he's provided the way for us. Amen. Anybody have anything that you wanted to share? The sacrificial system and where it became an assault to, to God when it began to be a substitute for living your life the way he called you to live. Yes. Before you got to the point of the sacrifice, you were expected that, in a sense, you were at a place where it was justifiable for you to offer a sacrifice because you were doing everything else mm -hmm. that he expected from you. So. A, a limited example is in, in the Gentile church who always thought that when they have communion, if you're not right with God at this time, you have issues to resolve, pass it up, let the cup pass, and don't commune, don't don't take the communion. It's it, it's kind of like along that thinking, but this is, of course, more, much deeper. But I think that's the, uh, where it became a substitute, where you, it became a shortcut. Well, I won't do all these things, but then I'll offer a sacrifice, mm -hmm. and that'll make that'll justify me before God, and that's what uh, that's what got detested. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, absolutely the when when God says I don't desire your sacrifices or to cease bringing these to me, it's a rebuke to the people because they are not living unto Him in the first place, and now they're trying to bring offerings as though everything's okay. And it's like, no, that's not, the offerings are drawing near to me, their reconciliation and restoration. But if you have not repented, if you're continuing to just walk in all your ways of the world and according to your own desires, and now you're coming and giving this lip service of restoration and reconciliation, no, don't bring it because it's useless. Right. So, so it's not that there's anything wrong with the offerings. The issue was with the hearts of the people. And his call was, get your hearts right, repent, and return to me, and then I will delight in your offerings that you bring, because they are communion and fellowship in the context of restored relationship. Yeah, amen. So, so all the sacrifices were korban, and that the meaning of korban is to, to draw near. That's, that's the actual meaning of that word. Um, and, and, and in all our circumstances, in our thanksgiving, in our repentance from sin, in our dedication to God, and in all of that, it is a drawing near to God, right? Um, and it just cracks me up uh, when people want to criticize God and, and they use the Old Testament for that. And they say, oh, look, he's, he's such a mean God. Look at all the sacrifices, right? Like all killing all these animals. That's just so cruel. Um, but... Not all animals destined for sacrifice had to be untouched in the sense of they were never put to work. Like they had to live the good life if they were destined for sacrifice. Um, which, you know, and what the world does when we're slaughtering animals, I mean, they should take a picture of that and see who the actual cruel element is. It's not God. Yeah. Um, and so 
in order to draw near to God, like like Moshe in in, in the um, the dwelling place, and he couldn't because of the concentration. He needed that covering, mm-hmm. right? And and so in order for us to approach God, we need that covering. Um, and like you were saying earlier, for the earthly, you need the earthly covering. For the heavenly, you need the heavenly covering. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it hit me later, the master sacrifice is not the only sacrifice for the heavenly realm. We need to bring the sacrifice of our life in accordance with the master to draw near to God's presence. Mm-hmm. So our life goal, our mission, every decision that we make, every trivial decision that we make, is it for our desire or his pleasure? Um, and then two verses. Then Yeshua told his Talmudim, if anyone wants to come after me, let him say no to himself, take up his cross and keep following me. Matthew uh, 16. And then in Romans 12, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. Mm-hmm. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. Amen. Yes, a living sacrifice. All right, let's let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the life that we have in this new and living way through the blood of Yeshua to have life. Lord, we thank you for the restoration and redemption that you brought forth. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to draw near to you. Lord, we ask that you would lead us and guide us into righteousness, that we would live as people wholly redeemed. Lord, that you would move in our midst. We bless you and we thank you, Lord. We ask these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.